From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Colin, we haven't been together for a month. Yeah, well, what did you and, say and, your and, name was again? Yeah, we're trying to get caught up, and McCall starts playing the music. This just his, butts in on everything. Yeah, his it? his servitude to the clock is uh, yeah. just, it's annoying is what it is. I'll be just quite frank about it. Yeah. But well, welcome back, Colin. Yeah. And welcome was, back, me. Between the true. two of us, we've, we've been out of town. We've we managed to indisposed. completely screw up open well, like March Friday. March to life, Legatus, <laughs> and then I was sick for yeah. like 10 days, so... Yeah. But here we are, here trying we to are. slog ahead with the apostolate, and we'll, we'll see what we can do today about that. Wonderful. It's going to be fantastic. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's been an entire month since we gave you unfettered access to a professional theologian, a member of the Pontifical Marian Academy, no less, so give us a call at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Have you been, uh, so you, you feel like you're totally on the mend now. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I had one of those eternal colds that just never wanted it's, to go It's been away. nasty this year, but you know what? Yeah, I, I have a theory. I think, you know, we we were not uh, locked down, and and everything else that goes along with that. Um, there's, you know, there you still see masks out there mm-hmm. occasionally, and there are people that, for good reason, should be extra cautious because of pre-existing conditions and and other things. Um, but I think I think next year. Because we battled this with our own immune systems to a mm-hmm. much greater degree this year, I think next year is going to be a lot less. Uh, well, I hope so because really, I the think best- this year was so bad because we locked yeah. down. Yeah. I think next year will be better because we don't. And if that's the case, I hope it'll teach everybody a lesson. Hopefully, hopefully that'll be. But anyway, that it seems like, yeah, we gave unfettered access to evolution to microbes of all varieties this year, and they took advantage of it. <laughs> they did. Got an email here from Frank, and he said, Protestants claim that when Jesus said the law was not abolished but fulfilled in him, he was saying that there was no longer any need for mediators between God and man. Is this true? No, because we have mediators between men and men, so it seems... Uh, you know, just on a level of reason that we have mediators with God. And we have one prime mediator and the only one who can bridge that distance between 
between between God the Father and human nature, and that's uh, God the Son, who is both divine and human. But everything is mediated in this world. Our parents mediate life to us. They mediate their introduction to the gospel, to the scriptures, to the Lord. Uh, our pastors, whether they're priests or, or, or simply pastors in the non-Catholic churches, uh, they are bringing the gospel. They're bringing their own studies to it. So all of these are examples of secondary mediation. The primary mediation is God. Without his grace, without Christ's human nature, and is taking our nature to, in order to, to, to save us, in order to restore us to the Father, nothing that the rest of us do is useful. It will be effective. But that Christ involves us in his own ministry, of salvation. Uh, the Apostle Paul said he was a minister of redemption. There are other ministers of redemption throughout history. And in the church, we have this in the sacramental order. We have it, of course, in the, in the hierarchical order of bishops, priests, and deacons who are ministering in their own way particular de, uh, aspects of Christ's own ministry. Uh, we talk about the the priest acting in persona Christi. We talk about the uh, uh, the charity of Christ coming to us through the work of the deacons. All of these are ways in which they they do a mediation of of Christ's one uh, indispensable mediation between us and the Father. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at eight three three. Two eight eight three nine eight six. Lulu is watching us on YouTube, and she says, "Can you talk about how the Old Testament teaching of circumcision is attached to New Testament infant baptism?" Well, the idea of circumcision was to be introduced into the people of God, and in Israel, this is a this is a, a fleshly relationship. It's a relationship uh, which is. Um, comes through through the parents, uh, Jewishness through the mother, but you have that leadership, that leadership which the father has in the tribe and in the family. And so that is passed on, that's passed on to the male. But in any case, what you have there is you have a sign in the flesh of that covenant with God. Well, Christ gave us a new sign of that covenant when he talked about, unless you are baptized in water in the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter into the kingdom. You shall not enter into the family of God. In other words, the supernatural family, which satisfies and completes all the promises to the natural family of, of, of the Israelites. And so that's why how those two things are connected. Um, Andrew says that he is um, a Protestant, and recently he's become interested in Catholic teaching, but he doesn't understand the role of works in the Catholic understanding of salvation and wants to know if you can help him out. Well, we, if, if you take works in the sense in which it was understood in the, uh, the context of Paul's time, in which he's talking about it, he's talking about works of the law. We have to remember that there was not simply one religious faction in Israel. There were several. Uh, there were the Essenes, which were very messianic. There were the, the Sadducees, of, to which most of the priests belonged, that were uh, 
less concerned about theological questions. And then you had the Pharisees, which were very much concerned about theological and moral questions, and they had reduced the, 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 the teaching of the commandments to, the, to the, a collection of laws, of over 600 laws. And each of these represented a work to be done. What they, had, what they had foreseen was, if we wish to be faithful to God, and he has said, do not do these things and do these things, what we need to do is we need to build a fence around those laws lest we get so we don't get close to breaking them. And in this way, we find our, our purity before God, that we don't ever even get close to breaking the laws which he has established. And so their oral tradition sought to set those fences around the things which God had, had commanded and prohibited and so on, so that those laws would not be broken. What that amounted to, a kind of ritualized version of moral probity, of purity. And we find that uh, condemned by Christ in the Gospels when he talks about, he gives examples of, uh, of, of, of things related to this. Uh, and he makes, uh, essentially makes all foods pure, for example. And St. Paul explains that when he says that the law was meant to be a tutor. It was to teach us about good and evil. evil. It was to teach us about righteousness. But it didn't mean that that was the end of the story. The story is fulfilled in Christ, who told, shows us that the greatest righteousness is not in keeping any laws such as the Pharisees established, but in that love of God and neighbor which causes us to fulfill all laws, to satisfy them without even seeking to satisfy them per se. We know what is wrong, we know what is evil, but in loving God and neighbor we satisfy all the laws because we never offend against God and neighbor as a result of our love, not as a result of a material complying with some, uh, some law or some tradition. And so the, the difference then in the Catholic understanding is that the works are not works of the law, but works of charity. That when we love God and we love our neighbor, we are, in a sense, doing a work of charity, and we're not doing it on our own because Christ is doing it in us, and that's made clear in the New Testament, that everything that the Christian does in Christ is, is, is done by his grace. But we're cooperating in that grace, and we are being a vessel for, uh, for him doing that act of charity, and we are uh, complementing it. And so this is, for us, the work, in quotes, and you have to keep it in that way. And you can see in St. James how he uses that, that not just by belief, and but also by works we are saved. Excuse me, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Mother Angelica started EWTN's religious catalog because of her devout belief in the importance of holy reminders to surround your things that 
that remind you of the reality of the Christian life. And we've got a beautiful item in Religious Catalog right now. It's a 20-inch statue of Our Lady of Lourdes. Um, and you can surely add a bit of grace to your home with this lovely statue. It's made of molded fiberglass. It's hand-painted. It's actually 21 inches high, and it's imported from Peru. We have a we have a one of our Spanish producers is from is from. It's a good size statue. It is. That is a good size statue. <laughs> um, uh, Jaime Molina, one of our Spanish producers, yes. is from yeah. Peru. He's well. Actually, I think that uh, um, uh, Pablo Pilgo is from Peru. I believe as well. As well yeah. Yes. We got Peru covered here at EWTN. Um, Our Lady first appeared to St. Bernadette Subaru on February 11th in 1858. Since that time, more than 200 million people have visited the shrine built in her honor at Lourdes. And um, it's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. It's EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. A unique opportunity for you on a Friday. Wide open phone lines. 833-288-EWTN with your question for our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986. Robert wants to know if Molinism is a heretical view. Uh, no, because I think their uh, peace between parties is uh, what was commanded there on grace versus uh, uh, the advantage, uh, grace versus uh, freedom. So I don't think that would be considered a Molinist view. Do you want to maybe give some of our listeners who don't know what the heck we're talking about a, just a brief background on that? Well, the argument is basically between the Dominicans and the, and the Jesuits, I believe, as to the role of, of grace and freedom in human— we were just talking about human cooperation. We were talking about works. And so you get the— you get uh, the point of view that grace is the more superior element and the other that freedom is. And so that battle went back and forth until basically a pope said, shush, you know, the church is big enough to hold two views. We don't have to settle this. And this is, I think, a good paradigm for a lot of issues that occur throughout history in the Preach. church. Preach it, brother. <laughs> you know, whether it's in our day or not. So, so today we have, for example, the battle of, you know, is it better to tell somebody they're a sinner and they better shape up and, you know, get get straight right this second or else? Or is it better to be a little bit you know, may, not tolerant of sin, but pastorally more sensitive. And so this is a, a similar situation today, really, when the role between law and freedom uh, is is uh, not freedom to sin, but maybe what's the appropriate way to bring somebody closer to Christ who is very far removed in a, from a culture, raised in a culture which is very far removed from God. So there are many things which can come under that general umbrella as there, you know, there be mysteries here. In this case, it's the mystery of man and how we come to know the truth and how we come to adhere to the truth and what patience ought we to show to those who can't quite do it now but maybe want to and are struggling to do it. And so these debates go on today on other 
other areas of theology here more between uh, the the strictly moral theology and the pastoral theology, the application of of the church teaching regarding morality. The teaching doesn't change, but the way you can apply it in situations to individuals can change. So those kinds of debates. And I think in all of those things, you have to step back a little bit and say, okay, how do we fully comprehend this, and can we fully comprehend it? Because we're not, we're not our Lord, who's standing before somebody, knew their innermost hearts and thoughts. They knew what's precisely necessary and would efficiently and successfully bring them to himself. We struggle to know that, to know people and to know how to deal with people. And I think that's something of the theological crisis of our day is what is, you know, where is the happy medium between extremes of, you know, pastoral patience and sort of the enforcer side of that. Um, And I think we will be working to solve that probably for decades. How How many corporal works of mercy are there? Seven, I believe. No, there's actually eight. The eighth eight. corporal work of mercy is call the theologian when his show is on the air. <laughs> so I'm imploring you to do that now. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, here's one that we visit from time to time, and it, it's something that needs to be reinforced on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, especially when you consider uh, some of the things that are being espoused by our separated brothers and sisters. Linda writes in, what is the Catholic teaching on predestination? Well, one possible teaching on predestination, which is not the Catholic one, is simply that God chooses, end of story. He does it in a vacuum, so to speak. He's God. And therefore, he determines that, you know, um, I, of course, will go to heaven and Jack will go somewhere else. Just chooses that. That would be... Purgatory. I'm sure you meant purgatory. I I probably meant purgatory. Yes, I probably (laughs) meant purgatory. (laughs) You know, that kind of absolute predestination. That's not the Catholic view, although that has been some some theological views uh, in, you know, since the Reformation have taken uh, taken that approach. The Catholic view is to say that God does not do, although he knows before he created the universe, before he created the material universe and us, he knew who would be redeemed and who would not. Although he knew that, he knew that by virtue of his knowledge of all of history and by virtue of his knowledge of all of our choices. And so that predestination, that being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will, uh, which many of our non-Catholic brethren love to say, well, is your name written in the book? Well, we can't know, but what we can have in this world is we can have perhaps some very good guesses. If you're trying to be faithful and you've done what the Lord has, uh, has asked you to do, while you can't foresee what circumstances might turn you against him, you can have confidence that you will be saved. You can't know with an absolute certainty, as some theologies propose, you know, you know, once saved, always saved. You can't know that. 
But you can know that because of the virtue of hope. You can know that in a sense and have confidence in that because you know God is all-powerful and what he has determined to do, he will always do effectively. And you want to be saved and you're seeking him and you're doing what you can. You know that he expects of you. That should give you confidence, that hope that I will be saved. Well, this is all known by God. On the other hand, he knows who will resist his grace. He knows who will refuse his grace. And we believe he even stops offering it because he doesn't throw his pearls before swine, as, it, as our Lord himself used that, that saying, do not throw your pearls before swine. So he doesn't waste grace. What did it mean for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened, that God did something to Pharaoh's heart, or that the Pharaoh's heart was already so hard that it was, you know, it was water could carve the Grand Canyon, but grace could not carve a niche in the heart of Pharaoh because God knew that was the case, and he no longer offered grace to him. So I think predestination in the Catholic sense takes account of our free choices. It makes, a cooper- makes us cooperators in our own salvation by our cooperation with God's grace given to us in baptism and through the sacraments and in and, and other ways. But it also makes us cooperators in our own damnation through our refusing of God's offers of grace and truth and light and peace and so on. Uh, That is the the Catholic view of of predestination, which means it's always until the last moment of life a work in progress when I can can renounce Christ or I can change my mind and accept him. Now, the likelihood becomes less in the more faithful we are, and that's why the grace of final perseverance as saints have prayed for Uh, assumes that we want that. We want to persevere through all trials. We don't want to be the one who burns incense to the emperor when our life depends upon it, but rather the one who dies at the cross or dies in the arena singing uh, to the Lord rather than giving in to to the civil power which is uh, oppressing Christians. And so we still have those choices and we persevere in doing the good with hope that in the end we will have persevered to the end and be received warmly by the Lord. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Caroline asks, is the book of Job real or just a story? If it's true, why don't we call him Saint Job? Um... I would have to check, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it's in the martyrology. Yeah, many of the patriarchs and others are. I I think it can be a mixture of of both. Um, There there was there was a theory in scripture scholars certainly when I was going through uh, studying these things in the eighties that these were a midrash of a, of a by essentially a Jewish midrash, a rabbinical way of looking and, 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 and treating moral issues uh, through sort of a parable, as Christ did in, his, uh, in the examples that we see in the Gospels. And that, so this was trying to tell us something uh, theologically. Uh, so I think, you know, barring an absolute certainty of whether the church considers him a saint, uh, meaning that he lived, 
that would be one explanation is that it's uh, completely true, that it's partially true, but in any case that it's true by virtue of the inspiration of whoever wrote it down because whatever purpose it is in the scriptures, it's there to teach us and it's the Holy Spirit teaching us. So the truth or, or the non-historical truth or historical truth of it doesn't really change the character of the book as an inspired book because it's teaching us some very profound things about uh, waiting in God and persevering and enduring. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Martin in Florida, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still two open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. As advertised, first up is Martin, a first-time caller in Milton, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Martin, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hey, Martin. Hi. Hi. I had a question about the pro- prophecy of Simeon, mm-hmm. where he's prophesizing uh, Mary's suffering, and um, how it opens up the thoughts of many. Yeah, this is traditionally taken as a reference to, obviously, Mary's own participation in the Passion, uh, that uh, she accompanies her son from the moment of the Incarnation all the way to the uh, the last, uh, the last of his acts in his public ministry, his being put to death, and so she shares in that. And of course, her share was not to die on the cross, but it was to endure uh, the mother's suffering of seeing her son crucified. But in that, she would be looked to as she was at Cana, as someone who could intercede with her son. And so you could say that from that moment in history is a parade of thoughts uh, to Mary, uh, to the Blessed Mother, for, for her, her help in suffering, her help in our human needs, her help in our own conversion, and the many other things that Catholics down through the centuries, Catholics and Orthodox, and all, all of those going in back to the ancient uh, uh, Christian um, unity of that first millennium uh, have done, and that is to see this profound relationship between Mary and Our Lady, this intercessory role of hers. And so that's to reveal our thoughts to her, to our needs, uh, and she who cooperated in every possible way that was asked of her in the Incarnation and Redemption uh, will surely get from the Lord, that which we need, uh, just as she did for a simple marriage feast at Cana. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
833-288-3986. Dell is another first-time caller. He's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Dell, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is, why is it that Tertullian is sometimes referred to as the first Protestant? Thank you. Sure. Uh, it, it it could be this. I've not actually heard that expression used, but I can see asserting certain fittingness in it. Uh, he is an important ecclesiastical writer, and so Tertullian is referred to in his Catholic phase, if you will. Uh, he is the one who came up with the idea of sacramentum, that word, a uh, Roman word in use for the standard that the legionnaires swore their allegiance to the emperor uh, on, uh, became the word which refers to those seven standards by which we adhere more deeply, more closely to Christ, the sacraments. Uh, the Greek word is, is mysterious, a mysterious, the mysteries in the, the New Testament, and in the East they still use that, but in the West we use this word which Tertullian invented. And there are other wonderful things uh, things that he said. However, he started following a prophet uh, who uh, this particular sect, the Montanists, claimed was not the incarnation of the Holy Spirit, but the fulfillment of what Christ promised, the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so he goes off he goes off into schism and into heresy. And so in that sense, uh, you could say that as a, as a, a writer, an important uh, figure even in his day and even down through history in many respects, he has the, you know, gave a lot of weight to this movement. And in that way, it's not unlike Luther abandoning the Catholic priesthood for, you know, for his belief, own beliefs. Uh, in, in England, the same thing for the, for the private beliefs of a king. Uh, and you look at the, the other reformers doing uh, similar kinds of things. Many of them, initially at least, rooted in the Catholic faith, as was Tertullian, but in the end breaking with the Catholic faith and going off and doing, um, you know, following some other path. So in terms, he wasn't the founder per se, but in terms of a leading light of his time who went astray, uh, he, he certainly represents that. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We heading out of the great state of Colorado. Jim is another first-time caller listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Jim, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, hi, uh, Colin. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Great. So just a quick question. So in Ludwig's um, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, one of the dogmas listed goes something like this. Um, Without special divine revelation, one cannot know with certainty of faith that one is in the state of grace. And um, I'm just wondering, is, was that uh, was that applied to confession? And if so, does it mean we can't be certain that we've met one of the requirements of a good confession or a valid confession, such as uh, can we not know that we have done a sufficient examination of conscience, mm -hmm. or can we not know that we're sufficiently sorry? 
Yeah, no, it is involving something much more subtle than that. Faith is that grace which God gives us in baptism, uh, which enables us to believe truths which by itself reason cannot uh, arrive at. Not, Not that it contradicts reason, and so the Catholic religion uh, compared to every other Christian religion has a very developed set of truths, but they're truths we can't arrive at faith in without the grace of God. I talked earlier about hope. We can't know that uh, we will be ultimately saved, that we will persevere to the end. Who can foresee all the circumstances in which we might find ourselves? But hope gives us confidence of that. You know, so we don't go around wringing our hands, woe is me, I might not be saved. No, we have confidence of it. We have total, complete confidence in that. And, of course, we also have the confidence of our efforts to be faithful, and that should give us confidence. So we, likewise, in performing the acts uh, that are called for in uh, confession, the examination of conscience, the evidencing of sorrow, such as the confessor uh, uh, needs to see, the doing of the penance, then clearly our goodwill, if it doesn't contradict our hope, it doesn't give us an absolute certainty, but why do we need that? There's a certain temperament that needs that degree of certainty. Uh, but the Christian doesn't need it because it has the words of Christ, in this case, the words of the priest. Christ clearly meant this to be our response because he gave the authority to the, to the church, and the church exercises in his name, and the priest says, after that lo- long and beautiful prayer that is recited before the words of absolution, that this is done through the power of the Holy Trinity by the ministry of redemption and so on, I absolve you from your sins. Now, we can't know in the way we know that 2 plus 2 is 4 or in the way we know the names of our wife and our children and our events of our lives and so on, but hope allows us to believe, to know that we are forgiven. Because faith tells us this is what Christ set up. Hope tells us it works because Christ's own power is behind it. And our love of God gives us the assurance, at least, that we are trying to be uh, adhere to what he established and be faithful to him. And all of these things work together to give us confidence. And so there shouldn't be any wringing of hands and splitting of hairs on this, because then what you end up going, in the case of hope at least, Presumption on the one hand, and that is, well, I'm just going to go through the motions and I'm taken care of. You know, that would be the caricature of Catholic confession. You know, uh, go to confession on Saturday, sin on Saturday night. Well, that's not what confession is about. That would be presumption. On the other hand, there's despair. Oh, me, oh, I can't know. That, did I get the proper formula? Did I use the, you know, did I examine my conscience well? Did I, you know, am I truly sorry for, my, no. We can't, that, that's a sin against hope. We have to have that confidence of belief in the power of Christ, in the power of grace, and in the truth of what the church teaches about these things to know and believe that if we have with all good will done what was asked of us, Christ with all that divine will will, will satisfy and perfect 
what he does through the church. That's where our count comes from, from faith, hope, and charity, not because we've, you know, agonized and kept a, you know, a list and checked off all the boxes, although there are certain boxes we have to check off, that examine the conscience, confess the mortal sins in number and in kind, and to uh, manifest our sorrow and do penance. Those things we do, and then we should be done, satisfied. Uh, next up is Joan in the great state of Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joan, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for you today? I, I, have, a, I have a question. Um, I, I've never uh, I could understand this part of the scripture where mm-hmm. it would say, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and, and what you lose on earth will be left in heaven. Are they, what's, what's the interpretation of this scripture? Are we looking at relationships? Are we looking at tangible items, like live a simple life and don't, mm-hmm. you know, have beautiful things in your home? I, I, I just really struggled with understanding yeah. that. Well, the the context makes it fairly clear. It's it's the authority given to first to Peter in Matthew thirteen that made him the chief of the apostles, and later on our Lord would give him the would say to confirm the brethren in their in their faith. In other words, to uh, to you know to settle the differences that that they might have over the understanding of the faith. The binding and loosing, of course, I just talked about the role in sacramental confession. Uh, again, this is the confidence. It, it, Christ gave this power to the church to bind. In other words, there, there is a history, uh, there's an analogy in the Jewish practice, and that is somebody, somebody could have be freed of an obligation or they could be bound in an obligation. And this was, this was an authority that came through, through the priests. And so they could go to the temple and the, do certain things required materially in the old law to, you know, to bring sin offerings and so on and to fulfill the requirements of the old covenant. In giving that authority to the, to the, uh, the priests of the new law, to the apostles and those whom they will associate with their ministry, the the presbyters, the elders, the priests. This is a, this is the authority to forgive sin in Christ's name, but also sometimes to say, you are evidently not sorry, I can't absolve. And this, so this is sometimes done in the sacrament of confession where perhaps the priest detects a lack of actual contrition on the part of the person, may inquire as, well, are you going to give up this sin? Yeah, I'll try, Father, but I'm not very confident. You know, well, you have to make a resolution to do that. Well, I don't think I can do that. Well, then I can't absolve you from your sins. What it means in heaven is, of course, that to the extent that the church, obviously, if it judges badly, that would be one thing. But this is a case of the church exercising Christ's own power we should consider those kinds of judgments as being made by Christ himself, and that's the authority that was given, given to the apostles. It also means that in other cases, in the cases certainly of the Pope, that there are things that can be 
associated with the sacrament of penance, such as the um, uh, indulgences, the indulgences which are a remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, which the church can establish, binding in heaven what is what is done here by authority on earth. It should give us confidence that when these decisions are badly made, it's not we who the the, the person who receives them are will be judged, but the person who makes them. It's a grave responsibility to exercise Christ's authority. And so we are not held accountable for those kinds of decisions, but we can take them to the bank, if you will, and trust in them and leave the rest to the Lord. So those would be sort of an everyday in interpretation of that, although it's usually an understanding that relates to the, the, the power of the keys, the authority of Christ given to the apostles in a special way to, the, to St. Peter and the popes after him, uh, to make conclusive decisions that bind the church on earth that the Lord ratifies in heaven because he has given this authority to Peter and to the apostles. And the Lord uses the example of the vizier, <coughs> could be called the prime minister or treasurer of the Israelite kingdoms. The king did not exercise the authority directly. The vizier carried the, the keys to the kingdom, if you will, on his belt, the keys to the king's treasury. And he did the ordinary business of the day. And so until Christ comes again, Peter and the apostles, the pope and the bishops, do the ordinary business of the kingdom in the name of the king and with his authority, with the binding of that authority and where it's exercised, the loosing, the freeing. Uh, we think of the power, uh, not the power of annulments, but we can think of the judgment that a marriage was null from the beginning. A Catholic can Take that in good conscience and utilize that freedom that is given, knowing that if a decision was wrongly made, they're not the one who will have to answer for it because we can trust to Christ in the power given and dispensed to the church. So that's the meaning of it. Uh, I suppose you can find some applications, as you suggested, in the ordinary things of life. I, I think an ordinary one Catholics and Christians in general might think of is that uh, in the end, all, all the things that happen providentially in the day we take is from coming from God and that God knows their end and we must only uh, surrender to his divine providence, something that all the saints of history have encouraged us to do anyway and scripture itself encourages us to do that, uh, to simply surrender to God and take him at his word. And that's certainly the case here. So, Colin, how did our Lord... How did the Father choose to reveal himself to Moses? Well, <laughs> are you trying, how's most, that related most to? Most famously. Most famously in the burning bush. I'm, shift, I'm shifting gears yeah, here. In the burning I'm, bush. I'm moving on to a new topic. Who most authors would yeah. say was uh, a, a theophany of Christ, the yeah. second yeah. person. So, but the, but the fire was present without consuming the bush. Correct. I would suggest to you that our Lord makes himself known to people in that very same way today. 
in the fire that appears within Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, yet does not consume him. <laughs> and you can experience this yourself as soon as we're done here in the very next hour. Beacon of Truth at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, today, Deacon Harold's overarching uh, topic is Faith After a Fall. Experience the fire within Deacon Harold Burke Sivers on Beacon of Truth right after uh, open line here on many of these EWTN stations uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Gerald is in the great state of Michigan listening on Holy Family Radio. Gerald, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh, pretty good. What's your question today? Well, my, my question, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the doctrine of the three-legged stool that's uh, used to explain the uh, balance of the magisterium of the Catholic Church, the uh, history and uh, historical practices of the Catholic Church, and the Word of God uh, as the three-legged uh, stool. Are you familiar with that or have heard I've heard, heard it's an analogy. Uh, it hasn't risen to a doctrine or a dogma yet. Under that title, each of those elements has been dogmatically defined, of course. Is that uh, principle used to allow for the permission of uh, implementation of practices in the Catholic Church? And I'll, I'll tell you specifically why, and it has to do with a family member of mine who is uh, not a saved individual that I've been attempting to minister to. Uh, but is, is that what is sort of utilized to determine what is acceptable and what is not acceptable uh, to God? The principle, that is. Uh, of these three things, the magisterium, the tradition, and the scriptures, yes. Quite so, simply because all three are revealed by God himself, and therefore they have the authority of God behind them. The scripture, uh, the obviously one. The, the reason I ask is this. Uh, the unsafe family member, when it uh, came to me speaking with uh, her, the female, about the newly adopted practice of uh, more wide acceptance, if you will, for lack of better uh, description, of homosexuality in the Church. Mm -hmm. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it coincide with that, yet the authority of the Catholic Church is being used to implement this, although in Scripture it's boldly, very boldly, against this practice. I think this would be a good time, Colin, to differentiate between the teachings of the Church and the behavior of members of the Church. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, you're wrongly phrasing the question for this reason, is that earlier on I was talking about some of the, the difficulties of the application of moral truths to individuals who are themselves in many ways a mystery. Uh, we, all have, we are all raised in certain settings, not all of which are wholesome, uh, our culture is generally overall not wholesome today, for example. Uh, particular families may be less wholesome even than the culture, and other families, of course, uh, very wholesome. And every, everybody is raised in a different setting. We cannot know the degree of moral culpability of individuals. This is the point that the Church is making today. Uh, there are a lot of disagreements over some of the details of this, but very little disagreement over 
the general proposition that, yes, there are many kinds of sins, and people arrive at getting rid of them from their lives by different pathways. And the question is, what are the most opportune past pathways pastorally dealing with these sins? So in the case of homosexuality, you might say, which is a more critical item in the church today, uh, homosexuality or heterosexual indecency, pornography, and all of these things which both homosexuals and heterosexuals engage in at a, a difficult rate. The problem is not that the church approves of any of those things, but that how do you get people to give up those practices? doesn't matter what sin you go to hell with for, you know, whether it's lying in a serious matter or whether it's a sexual sin or whether it's stealing or murder or abortion or whatever it is, whatever unrepentant mortal sin that you simply won't give up in order to adhere to God, that's grounds for you going to hell. But in this world, it's an opportunity to reach the person and to help the person to grow out of that sometimes contrary to a a whole way of being raised and acclimated by family, by culture, by associations, and so on, that says, you're an idiot, you're a fool, the Catholic Church doesn't know a thing, this is not the world today, enjoy your life, have all these pleasures. So the debate is not over whether these kinds of sins, whether homosexual or heterosexual or whatever they are, are right or wrong. The answers to that is in the sacred tradition. It's in the sacred scripture. It's in the magisterium. All three legs of the stool, if you will, are in perfect balance in this respect. The difficulty is encouraging people in a culture like ours to move closer to the church or at least not abandon the church in the interim until they're able to move closer, and how to do that. I think we know more psychologically, we know more humanly uh, today than in the past, you know, the difficulties in educating people for moral formation and things like that. This is, this is where the battle has to be won. This is where thoughtful people have to come up with what are the ways to get people out of these lifestyles, of whatever kind they are, that are contrary to God. And the church is not in any disagreement on these three, these three areas, but on what pastoral practice will accomplish that. Is it condemning them and throwing it in their face, or is it something else, somewhere on a spectrum that is not that? And I think it is somewhere on that spectrum, and I think the church will struggle in the coming years in discussing and debating this uh, and arrive at a way. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless.